Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. As I record this, Cuba is in the midst of upheaval and heightened repression, all because the people there have finally revolted against the brutal 61-year rule of the Communist Party. It just so happened that a few days before these events began to transpire, Dr. Carlos Ayer had agreed to come onto the podcast to tell his own story of being a child who was evacuated from Cuba in the early 1960s during the airlift known as Operation Pedro Pan. Dr. Ayer details his story in his two best-selling books, Waiting for Snow in Havana and Learning to Die in Miami, the events of which we will summarily discuss and use to have a general discussion of politics, history, and the future inside and out of Cuba. So keep in mind that as we talked, we had no idea what was about to happen. So today we're going to talk about your history. Of course, I encourage folks to read your books, Waiting for Snow in Havana and uh, Learning to Die in Miami, if they want to know about your life and situation in detail. And also it will explain why every time I see a lizard on a wall, I think of you. (laughs) Do Uh, you have lizards in Kentucky? Yes, not many. Not as many as in Florida. but, But I wanted you to first talk about, you're born in Havana, right? And why your parents decided to get you and your brother out of Cuba, which has got to be heartbreaking for any parent, to send you without knowing whether they'll ever be able to get to you or go with you themselves. And in fact, they, of course, you, they didn't go with you initially. It must have been a gut-wrenching decision. However, you know, when your house is on fire, you see this happen all the time. People throw their kids out the window. The fire department will be able to catch them on their little trampoline. It's exactly the same situation. And 14,000 kids left as part of this program, which was sponsored by several church organizations and the U.S. State Department. The U.S. State Department gave three people in Havana permission to crank out as many visa waivers for children as they could. And if they cranked out 80,000 visa waivers for children, which means that there were the parents of 80,000 children who were eager to send them to the U.S. unaccompanied. Only 14,000 were able to get out because uh, everyone knows about the October 1962 missile crisis. Well, a little footnote to that missile crisis was that Fidel Castro got so angry about having his toys taken away by the Russians that he slammed all the doors shut and nobody could leave Cuba. The plan, so that everyone understands, parents were sending their kids out to the US for many reasons. Number one, all the schools had been turned into indoctrination centers. Basically, Christianity had been abolished. Uh, all all Christian feast days, including Christmas, were outlawed. And um, the schools were just pure indoctrination. And you, your parent, if you were a parent, you had no choice. You had to send your kid to school. Number two, military service, especially for young men. You became uh, eligible for, not eligible, it was, it was mandatory. 
at, at age 17, I think it was. I could be wrong about the age. But anyway, you had to, all, all young men had to enlist in the army or the armed forces. But um, about two-thirds of the 14,000 kids were male. One-third were female. The youngest was three. The oldest, of course, was 17 or, or 16, just got out at the, at the very last time. As a matter of fact, many people don't know this. Miguel Bezos, or Mike Bezos, who adopted Jeff Bezos, oh, yeah. <laughs> is one of us. Is one of us. He was part of this airlift, and he left when he was 15. And he ended up being sent to a Catholic school, Catholic boarding school in Wilmington, Delaware. Last week, Mike Bezos just donated $12 million to this school. Some of us did well, some of us did not. You know, it was a chaotic, I always say it was well-organized chaos because uh, uh, since Cuba was 80% Catholic, right? About 80% of the kids were handled by uh, the Catholic church. There was an umbrella Protestant uh, association, I forget the name, that handled all the Protestants. There was a Jewish one. And then there was a secular one, uh, mostly for our, our Chinese kids. But 80% were Catholic. So a lot of us ended up being sent to Catholic boarding schools, especially the girls. Because back then there were such things. There were Catholic boarding schools that, that you know, boarded kids year round. So um, I know so many people who were sent to boarding schools, but Many of us also got sent to all sorts of foster homes, different kinds of foster homes. Another um, sort of well-known Pedro Pan, I'll explain the name, uh -huh. well, members of the airlift, <clears throat> was Mel Martinez, former senator from Florida. He ended up living with um, American families in Orlando. So the parents didn't know what would happen to the kids once they arrived. But there was this one man, Jorge Guarch, at the Miami airport, every day the planes landed, twice a week, KLM or Pan Am. And uh, he was there to pick up all the kids who were arriving. I didn't realize it, but the plane I flew out on, I thought my brother and I were only accompanied by about maybe five other kids. But no, <laughs> there were 15 or so kids on our plane. And then the moment you arrived, if you were a male over the age of 12, if you were 13 or older and a male, you were sent to one camp in Florida. And if you were under 13 male or a female, you were sent to a different camp, also on the outskirts of Miami. And uh, those were processing centers. The whole, those were not permanent camps. Those camps kept the kids until they found foster home situations for them. That's what happened. But it was fear of having your kids indoctrinated, not being able to be raised as Catholics or Presbyterians or whatever that propelled the parents, especially the parents of boys approaching teenage, to send their kids uh, unaccompanied. The plan was not for a permanent separation, but of course, everyone knew that was a possibility. The plan was to reunite. Once the kids with visa waivers arrived in the U.S., their parents could apply for real visas. And the, the, the legal question here, the legal point was, at that point in the Cold War, 
all adults to get a visa needed security clearances. So it took longer. Right. It took much longer for adults to leave. Plus, the minute an adult applied for a visa, you lost all your property. You lost your job and you lost all your property. Thanks to the Castro regime. Yes, yes. So that made the parents uh, hope that they could send their kids to the U.S. for a few months and then the Castro regime would somehow disappear and things would return back to normal. Many parents did what my parents did, which was thinking there was a higher, much higher percentage chance of the Castro regime disintegrating than anything else. Uh, The moms would apply for a visa and the fathers would stay behind. Also, a lot of fathers, if you were professional of any kind and the government, uh, for whatever reasons, decided they needed you, would not be given permission to leave. My father was one of those. He could not get permission to leave. And so you never saw him again? I never saw him again, no. Uh, Our mom, um, of course, applied for a visa. She got one, and uh, she got an exit permit, and she was all set to fly to the U.S. and reunite with us on November 3rd, 1962, one week after the missile crisis. Oh, man. One week after the doors slammed shut. So she was stuck there for another three years. Took her that long to get out. She finally, uh, through Mexico, she had a friend of a friend of a friend who knew somebody at the Mexican embassy, and she got a Mexican visa. But it took three years. So she left through Mexico, and, and finally, you know, long story. Arrived in the U.S. in um, the fall of 1965. Mm-hmm. Just as Fidel Castro decided, let's made some deal with Lyndon Johnson for I don't know how many millions of dollars, President Lyndon Johnson, to reopen the gates and allow Cubans to, to fly in. So she flew in at possibly the worst possible time because all of a sudden uh, Miami was flooded with thousands of Cubans arriving every week. There were no jobs. Anyway, long story. She ended up being sent to Chicago where we knew nobody. And um, that's where we were reunited in November of 1965. In between, here's what happened to my brother and me. Uh, We spent like two weeks in the camps, different camps. We were separated the minute we arrived. And um, He was picked up by one foster family in Miami. I was picked up by a different foster family in Miami. And uh, they were friends, these two families. And um, they were Jewish. And they they had to sign an agreement that they would not try to convert us to to Judaism. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the irony. At age 11, when I arrived, I hated church. I hated religion. There was nothing to me, nothing scarier than a church full of images of a crucified, bleeding Jesus. You know, that was very scary for me. But they forced us to go to church every Sunday. Your Jewish family. My Jewish family. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting emotional. Yeah. My foster father, Lou, Louis Chait, was an atheist. Uh, for the first few weeks, they kind of, you know, they sent me to church on, on my bike, 
sled pedal there, but I didn't know they were they were following me. They were keeping an eye on me <laughs> to make sure I'd go to church. And they'd give me money to put in the collection plate. So, but as soon as the door slammed shut on our mom, um, you know, they had only taken us on thinking it would be a few months. Mm-hmm. It was a tiny house, and they had two infants that they had adopted. In the meantime, an uncle of ours, uh, my father's brother, had arrived. This is 1962. He had arrived, but, um, uh, you know, he didn't have a job. He, he had been an architect in Cuba. He had his own firm. He had his own architectural firm. But the federal government had a program uh, to give bonuses to companies that hired Cuban professionals. So he was hired by an architectural firm in Bloomington, Illinois, which is right smack in the center of the state. And as a matter of fact, on the evening weather reports, we always got the weather for Paducah, uh-huh. Kentucky. <laughs> Not far from here. Yeah. So the plan was my brother and I would be sent to our uncle's house. Eventually. He just wasn't ready. As a matter of fact, I think when when we got uh, tossed out of the, our foster homes, he was still in Miami waiting to, to move. They forgot about us, whoever was in charge. My brother and I were sent to a foster home that was full of what was back then were called juvenile delinquents. Oh, man. Gang members and you know rough kids, all of them Cuban. Mm-hmm. They're all kids from broken families, mm-hmm. not just kids from, from the airlift. They're kids who had just gotten lost. Anyway, it was a horrible place. It, you know, it, it's, uh, Dickens could, couldn't have created <laughs> such a place. Right. So we were, we were uh, kind of stranded there, and they forgot about us. And one day a social worker comes in and, and sees she, she came in to handle some other kids' problems. She saw us and says, what are, what are you boys doing here? Why aren't you with your uncle? Uh-huh. Boom. Within two or three weeks, we'd been sent to Bloomington, Illinois. But we had to spend <laughs> nine, or ten, nine or ten months or so in that horrible place, which shaped me. Sure. I am very grateful for that experience. It really changed me. And that's when I kind of began to realize that the bleeding Jesus was not scary. And actually, it's, it's the world that's scary. Mm-hmm. And he, he offers a, a way to cope with all this and promises something better. So I very much liked the Protestant Jesus, though. Uh, I forget who the artist was who... Um, he was Methodist. He did this image. It's just kind of like a half profile of Jesus with his long hair. He looks very benign. Yeah. Very friendly. So, um, but anyway, all of that uh, made me realize that religion was not something awful, but actually a, a ray of hope. And we, we spent two, two months, I mean, two years, two months, and two days living with our uncle in Bloomington, Illinois. And those were very, very happy times for me. I loved it. I just loved it. Uh, it was a nice small town. It's very different now. 
there weren't very many other foreign families in town. Most of the foreign families in town were actually German who had come to the U.S. after the war. And I, I remember going to my uncle's Americanization class. They actually had these things back then. To get your, your green card and become a citizen, you had to go to school and learn how to be an American. Right. <laughs> and most of the people in the class were German. Uh-huh. And the classes were run by Germans. Very funny situation. I became thoroughly Americanized and decubanized in Bloomington, Illinois. I remember one girl, we were at uh, Woolworth's Dime Store. And uh, I was there with my aunt and my two cousins. And we were speaking Spanish. And this little girl just came up to us and stood there with her mouth open. She had never heard anyone speak a foreign language before. That also shaped me. In Bloomington, Illinois, we were really helped a lot by Protestant churches, especially the Methodists and the Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what shaped me, you see, and, and that's one of the reasons I went in to do uh, Protestant Reformation as my specialty, mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, growing up in a almost totally Catholic country, I was, of course, told that, you know, if you didn't belong to the Catholic Church, you'd go to hell. Mm-hmm. But then I, you know, um, who helped me? Was, you know, of course, the Catholic Church was involved in the whole uh, airlift thing, but um, it was Jews and Protestants who helped us the most. So uh, I became very ecumenical. Right. <laughs> One person that I kind of perceive is almost like a Harriet Tubman of this whole operation. And it's to me, it's just sad that I only found out about it maybe five years ago. I never heard about it in school. But Brian Walsh, who was a priest, yes, was he kind of the brain behind the whole thing? Or no, actually, it's a very interesting story. Brian Walsh was a an Irish, born in Ireland, real Irish Catholic mm-hmm. priest in Miami, who was uh, in charge of you know the the children's welfare, whatever it was, you know, to take care of kids who needed help. And all of a sudden, in the early 60s, uh, all of these um, unaccompanied kids began showing up. And he thought, we've got to fix this. And then there was an American school in Havana, Ruston Academy. The uh, headmaster also heard about this and also heard, uh, you know, from parents that they were eager to just send their children no matter what. Anyway, long story short, the headmaster of the school went to Miami, uh, met with Father Walsh, and between the two of them, because the headmaster had friends or connections at the State Department, okay. they cooked up this program. And um, this is my favorite part of the story. The person who handled all the details of establishing this on the Cuban end was a British teacher at this at Ruston Academy. And now right now I'm forgetting her name, but she has a name that's something straight out of a James Bond movie. <laughs> we'll call her Miss Moneypenny. Miss Moneypenny had actually worked in Britain during the Second World War on the kinder transport that ah. rescued Jewish children from the continent. Wow. So she knew how to she knew how to do this. 
Uh-huh. Right. So it's, it's just an amazing story. And, it, you know, since the kids arrived bit by bit, it wasn't in the press. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few people knew about it, except for the people who were contacted by church agencies. Uh, you know, could you please take in a foster kid? So it was under the radar. And some newspaper person in Florida, I believe it was, or Georgia, is the one who came up with a stupid name, Pedro Pan. <laughs> Or Peter Pan, right? right? I hate that name. Oh, you know, these children are flying. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I always say, you know, two things. In Spanish, pan means bread. So it's a stupid thing. And as a matter of fact, I had watched the film Peter Pan, I don't know how many times. And he, you know, he, we call him Peter Pan, uh-huh. not Pedro Pan. All right. And uh, it's the reverse of the Peter Pan story. If you go to Never Never Land, you stay a child forever. All right. However, all of us who came the minute we landed in the U.S., we lost our childhood. Sure. So um, it's a stupid name, but we're stuck with it. Right. To bring up the Bible, this whole thing is like a feat of like biblical proportions. I mean, it's an exodus. And you know, yeah. one, I'm surprised that. Well, I'm not really surprised that Hollywood hasn't tried to you know capitalize on it, make it an epic film, but. Did that ever occur to you, that illusion, like when you were a kid or later on in life, like, wow, this is just like Moses and the Castro's being the Pharaoh? Yeah, but I had no idea of the magnitude of the Exodus. Uh-huh. Actually, it's not until the early 2000s when um, someone who is now a very close friend of mine, Victor Triay, published the, the very first history of the airlift uh-huh. that I found out how huge the numbers were. Uh, I thought maybe two, three thousand at most, not fourteen thousand. Plus, Victor has just discovered that um, there was a similar program in Spain, and that perhaps as many as six thousand kids went that way. Oh wow! But there's no history of this, right? Oh. This is another one of these unknown Exodus stories. So let's go back to your your Jewish family. It's been a while since I read your books, but uh, can you guess what their motivation was in helping two kids who didn't speak English, you know, and what did you ever perceive? And also, were you able to keep contact with them later on in life? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, to to answer your first question, I, I learned the reasons many, many years later when Lou said, we have to do something. We had, you know, uh, it's, it's payback for all the families that took in Jewish refugees. Uh, referring to the Holocaust. The Holocaust, yeah. yeah. And even earlier than that, you know, he told me his, his uncle, uh, some village in Russia, his uncle was just standing at the doorway and some Cossack came by and just shot him dead for no reason, just for being a Jew, Whew. you know? Yeah. So um, it's only later when I moved to Bloomington, Illinois, that I realized that some of the English words I had learned were Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was what the Jews call mitzvah, a, a good deed. But he was an atheist, he told me, you know. Right. Uh, such, such was their generosity. They were very generous. Same thing with the family that took in my brother. Although my brother was much harder to handle, he was a teenager. And his family had two teenagers. So you can imagine the mess at that house. Not easy, especially because my brother didn't like any rules. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing 
story, uh, their story, the Chait family and the Rubin family. It was the other family's names. Mm-hmm. Amazing that anybody would do that. I don't know if I could do that. You know, I stayed in touch with them. Yes, I stayed in touch with them. on and off, on and off, on and off. Right. Yeah. So they saw you made good. Oh, yeah. 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 And actually, here's a touching story from my mother, Norma. She had three, three daughters from a previous marriage who didn't live with her. For some reason, it's very rare for the 1950s or 60s, right? The, the kids were awarded to the father. This is your Jewish mother, anyway, right? Yeah. So anyway, I saw the daughters maybe two or three times when they came to visit. Anyway, I write my books, and I, I go to give a talk in San Francisco. And one of her daughters lives in the area, and she came. Turns out she thanked me so much and so often for my books because she didn't get a chance to live with her mother. And it's only through my books that she got this glimpse of her mom at that time. You know, of course they, they, got, they got in touch later when, they, when she was an adult, but unintended consequence of writing about somebody is, you know, you affect somebody's life right. that you don't know. By the way, a day or two after we recorded this episode, Dr. Ayer let me know that the British woman who helped with both the evacuations of Jews in World War II and the Cuban children during Operation Pedro Pan, whose name we couldn't remember, was, in fact, Penny Powers. Well, that's funny you mentioned that. One of my questions was, I like how when someone tells their life story, that ends up leading to new stories, especially when they're published. And you, you gave that experience, but has publishing, both Snow and Learning to Die, given you new experiences? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, okay. Most definitely, yeah. Uh, all sorts of stories. So there's a third oh. book coming, huh? No, there's no third book coming because, you know, writing about your adult life is too dangerous. I actually had to have very long phone conversations with a lawyer for Simon and Schuster, the publisher, about the people in both books. Wow. And many of the names in both books had to be changed because people can sue you. For telling the truth? Yes. Man. Yeah, they can sue you for libel. And they can sue the publisher too. So it's too dangerous to write. All these people who write their adult memoirs, I don't know, they must have these very complicated legal contracts or something to protect themselves and the publisher. Uh, Of the many stories I could tell is that um, I started receiving thank you letters and emails. And the first few were from, you know, American readers. About almost a year after the book was published, I started getting thank yous from Cuban readers. And um, they all said, thank you. I was very afraid of my Cuban readers. I didn't know what they would think. But actually, 99.5% of the mail I've gotten from Cubans has all been uh, thank you notes, basically. And they break down as follows. Those who went through everything that's described in the books, they say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for telling my story. That's what they say. It's their, I'm telling their story. And then those who were born here in the United States to Cuban parents or the grandchildren of Cuban exiles, they say thank you for confirming all these stories 
that my family's been telling me. So the minute it's in print, it's confirmed. Right. Right. And most of them say, thank you for confirming. I never believed it till I read it in your book. And uh, another percentage, less than half, but still a a huge percentage, say, um, thank you for telling me these stories because my family found it so painful. They never told me any stories. Mm -hmm. So thank you for, you know, letting me know what happened. It's amazing. And then some some readers have corrected me, people who were part of the story, <laughs> who corrected me. Um, you know, our memories are not entirely foolproof. My favorite story is um, a neighbor of mine who, who became my friend during my last two years in Cuba. He lived right about a block from me. We became good friends. And I don't mention him by name in, in, in the book. I actually do say I made many friends towards the end, but I, I didn't want to get attached to them because I knew I was leaving. Mm-hmm. One of these friends, Miguel Sales, Miguelito, picks up the book. I get an email. Hey, 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 I just picked up your book. Yeah, man, we start, you know, emailing and then we agreed to meet in Paris where he was leave, living because he worked for UNESCO in Paris. At the end of the book, I say it. When we left at the airport, none of my friends came to see me. First thing Miguel tells me when we meet up in person is, uh, don't you remember me being at the airport? And I had to say, no. Of course, he'd read the book. He knows I didn't remember. Yeah. I, I don't remember him being there. But obviously, he was. He described the whole scene to me in great detail, including who rode in which car. Oh, wow. And then he said to me the most shocking thing. He says, you know, it's so weird that you can't remember me being there because that day changed my life. And that day was my first step towards prison because he ended up spending six years in prison in Cuba for saying the wrong thing. That's awful. And uh, he said that was the day that made me realize that what was going on in Cuba was totally wrong. Seeing all these families separate. And now he is uh, kind of a superstar in the Cuban exile community. He was one of these prisoners who just resisted all attempts at conversion and at apologizing, you know, re-education camps and so on. He just stood firm and actually meant it for I don't know how long. He refused to wear the prison uniform because political prisoners were given the same uniform as criminals. Mm. So he went naked for I don't know how long. I don't remember the guy being there, but that moment changed his life, (laughs) made him who he was. So let's get into the political a little bit, because what you're telling me, and really the experiences of a lot of people that have suffered under socialism or communism or whatever, they, they have to, they sometimes they're told to shut up by, especially people in the American left here in the United States. And oh, I, yeah. I, I have, you know, personal friends who, to give you some backdrop, I used to live in China. My wife is from Zimbabwe. You know, when we relay the stories of the things that we saw or experienced, it's like, they kind of look at us like we're sad creatures who didn't understand what we were seeing. It, right. If they yes. even admit that bad things happen there. and That's right. Then they, if they don't do that, they like attack your moral character or your intelligence. You know, yes. 
to give you one example, and it really hurt me, one friend of mine had somewhat recently posted on social media that if any one of his friends posted anything critical of socialism, he was going to unfriend or delete them. Oh, well. So, I mean, obviously you experienced a lot of this, like, especially oh, yeah. when you're promoting your book, did you get some grief from people? Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time. You have to develop a thick skin. You know, there's a lot of um, hypocrisy on the part of the left and on the part of people who are not even leftists, but, you know, they're just uh, ignorant. Everybody thinks, every, by everybody, I mean 90 plus percent of Americans and Europeans think that Cuba was a third world hellhole and that Fidel Castro came along and provided everybody with education and free medical care because that fits the narrative. And the narrative, and I'm sure, you know, since your wife is from Zimbabwe, you know exactly what I mean. The, the narrative, the, the idea, the construct, the paradigm is that there are people so primitive and so backward that their only way out of their primitiveness is socialism. Because basically they're too stupid and they don't know how to have a democracy. They don't know how to have a free market. They'll just ruin themselves if they're left to their own devices, which is the same mentality that spurred European colonialism in the 19th century. The idea of the noble savage or the primitive who needs rescuing still holds. Yeah. And you don't have to be third world. I saw this on TV and it was one of my favorite moments ever on television. The comedian Bill Maher, who has this show on HBO, he was interviewing Boris Spassky, the chess champion, who at that time was running for president of Russia. And um, Bill Maher said something like, you know, why are you even doing this? You know, because, you know, everybody knows Russian people always needs a strong hand to keep everything in place. Like the Italians needed Mussolini. And boy, did Spassky let him have it. Spassky just went on and on and on. And on. What a swinish kind of conception he had. Swinish and infantile conception of other people he was putting forward. And at the end, all that Bill Maher could say, and I'll give him credit for this, uh, he said, boy, do you sometimes get the idea that they're playing chess and we're playing checkers? <laughs> About Spassky. Uh -huh. That was the thing. Okay. Yeah. That they're playing chess and we're playing checkers. Spassky gave the most, I, I mean, I wish I'd someday, uh, maybe I'll look it up and see if it's on online. But he gave the most eloquent critique of this attitude that I have ever heard anyone give. Uh, so, you know, the same goes for the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And since you lived in China, you know exactly what I, what I mean. Yeah. Well, of course, Chinese. Oh, look what communism has done for them. Oh, yeah. Look. Oh, oh, how wonderful. Yeah. How wonderful. Sure. <laughs> I get Chinese students when I teach summer term. Half my students are always from China. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to have that Yale thing on their sure. transcript. <laughs> Beautiful wonderful young people. And they all very sheepishly admit how much they're enjoying getting a look. Because what I teach is a, basically a course on history of Christianity from the Middle Ages to the Enlightenment. And some of them tell me their stories. One of them told me the most heartbreaking story I've ever heard from any Chinese. People don't think about the, the one-child policy. Yeah, This one kid he was actually not a summer term student. He was a he was a regular student here at Yale. 
the only one from his province allowed to study overseas. And one day he said, you know, my, my mother has a lot of psychiatric uh, problems, mental issues. I think it's because she was, I, I'm the only child, uh, she was forced to abort three others. I had a few questions submitted by listeners, and this one is from Lorraine uh, Lawless, and I should mention she's a volunteer for a Cuba Decide or a Cuba Decide, I guess how you say it. Uh-huh. And, oh, yes. Yeah, it's Rosa Maria Paya's organization. That's right, right? yes. But she wanted to ask you, why is it that people in America uh, seem not to care about the people of Cuba? And she wants to know if you have any theories on this. Like, and she gives an example. She's written to different organizations and individuals from colleges, uh, governors, you know, even little league baseball teams, asking them you know, to to stop working with the regime, the Cuban regime, right? Sure. And she even will give them facts of, of you know human rights abuses and that type of thing. And she never, rarely ever gets a response. Um, do you have a theory on that? Sure, I do. It's what I just uh, tried to explain through Boris Spassky, uh-huh. right? Cubans are primitives. They're noble savages, you know. If you go visit, all oh, the people are so nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, but they're like, you know, they're like children who will never grow up. They need this. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the repression is necessary. Because that way they can get so-called free education, which is really indoctrination. Right. And free health care. So that's the best they can hope for. So why complain? Uh, so, and this goes on, this, this, this is not uh, particular to any social class, geographical part of the United States or anything. It's, it's just throughout American culture. And it's not just Cuba, right? Uh, it's yeah. any place that's considered less civilized. These people are incapable of obtaining free health care and free education. So this is great. And you might notice if you're a careful reader that the Cuban government uh, is often referred to as authoritarian rather than repressive. The same thing about China. President Obama was very fond of using, and and everybody to the left in the Democratic Party, they always referred to these countries as authoritative. I'm surprised they admit that even, really. Well, they have to in some places, like uh, uh, Belarus, right? I forget the name of their dictator. Uh He's an authoritarian. Uh The president of China is authoritarian. Putin is authoritarian, and so on and so forth. And and the Castro regime is authoritarian. So that's the only way these people can get enough to eat. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that it's like 1984, like George Orwell's world. So uh, Rosa Maria Paya is doing wonderful stuff. Her father did wonderful stuff. And in case most of your other listeners don't know this, he was killed by the Castro regime, but they made it look like an accident. Sure. And to this day, many years later, there's still no no justice. Yeah. Well, thinking about Lorraine's question, you know, we can talk about the left, or maybe people who are not even political, uh, not caring about Cubans or North Koreans or whoever, and we can laugh at them and, and feel good about ourselves, but have you found anything that actually works? What makes a deaf man here? Have you had any success yeah. changing people's minds? 
No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think I've had much success. It is it, it is it impossible because unless they get to know you personally and, and to trust you, you're just another one of those people. And if you if you badmouth the authoritarian regime, then there are two things that they think. Either you're stupid or you're evil or both. Yeah. So it takes it takes some changing. As a matter of fact, you know, talking about reactions to some of my talks, I once had this audience member here in Westport, Connecticut. At the end of my talk, um, he stands up and starts yelling. He wasn't just, you know, at the question and answer period. He didn't have a question. He just starts yelling. He says, you people are ruining this country. You kept, kept repeating it. You people, meaning Cubans. Right. You're ruining this country. It's because of you people that we're in Iraq. It's because of you people that we're in Afghanistan and so on. I finally, the, the light bulb went on. Uh -huh. Those few Cuban votes in Miami that uh, carried the election for George W. Bush. Uh -huh. right? You people are ruining this country. And he went through a long list of all the terrible things Bush had done uh -huh. in his mind right. that are responsibility. And then finally he says, why don't you just shut up and go back to where you came from? And then I noticed he had a number tattooed on his arm. He no. was a Holocaust survivor. Really? Yes. So all I could say to him is, excuse me, sir, you know, you're using this term, you people, blanket thing. Uh -huh. It's that kind of talk that got you into a cattle car and into the concentration camp in the first place. Wow. And then uh, I'm sure you're a good man. He says, I don't care what you think about me. So there you go. How sad, how ironic, right? But we're hated. We Cuban exiles tend to be hated because we kind of prove that socialism and all this repressive authoritarian uh, kind of governing is bad. Same thing I'm sure happens to South Koreans because they're prime example. I mean, if there's any place on earth that proves, right, proves this whole theory wrong about these people you know, needing stuff, Look at the South Koreans and look at the difference between South Korea yeah. and North Korea. Or look at the difference between Taiwan before China became an industrial supergiant, right? Uh -huh. Till we gave the factories to them. But, you know, back then, Taiwan was one thing and China was just com completely another. Yeah, you're uh, right. You could, put, you could put one foot in South Korea and, of course, across the DMZ, put one foot in North Korea. And there's absolutely no difference between the really the climate or the people or the resources, right. but man, right. what a difference there is. Yes. So, you know, North Koreans are, I don't know what kind of grief they get, but I'll tell you every time I meet somebody from Eastern Europe, we're, we become immediate friends because <laughs> we, we understand. This may be too difficult to answer. This is another good question for Lorraine, I think. What is a recipe, do you think, looking at history for an actual revolution that doesn't cause something worse than the thing they were trying to replace? And with that in mind, like what could people do outside and inside Cuba or any of these regimes? But maybe Cuba may be a little bit special. I don't know. What do you think? Because... You know, I think as Americans, we think, oh, we had an American Revolution. It went so well. But 
we forget the other countries that tried to have revolutions and end up, like I said, with that animal farm effect where you have something worse than the farmer. Yeah. Well, in the first place, uh, you have to have certain things already existing. And the most essential is private property, uh, allowing people to own things, allowing free enterprise. Uh-huh. That's essential. Now, okay, let me stop you there. From a progressive yeah. Christian who thinks yes. to be Christian is to be socialist, how would you yeah. reply to that when they say, oh, private property is evil, it's all theft? No, it's not. Anybody who thinks that should read, uh, you know, whether they're uh, Protestant or Catholic. But there is a Catholic document that explains it all beautifully, and that's the encyclical Rerum Novarum from the late 19th century. On new things, that's what rerum novarum means. It explains very, very, very carefully why private property is necessary. Almost explaining it as a necessary evil due to human fallenness and to human selfishness. And the only people who care, really, uh, about how, how, how things work and, and uh, are those who have something that provides for their family. So the family's linked to this. But anyway, that's not a good way of explaining it. To me, a better way of explaining it, you know, what you have to have on on ground is this private property because, in fact, it is people who own things who get things done. It's entrepreneurs who get things done. And St. Augustine had a way of explaining this. Human selfishness makes it impossible for people to share. Human selfishness actually is what creates most uh, aggression, violence, and hostility. So an ideal situation where everyone shares and shares alike is a monastery. Mm. And monasticism, it doesn't exist only in the Christian world. There are all kinds of Asian monasticism too. Well, those people share everything because they have chosen to do so. When you try to force people to share against their will, human beings cannot make that work. They just can't. What you end up with is George Orwell's Animal Farm or George Orwell's 1984. But um, as they used to say in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and as people said in Cuba, you know, under socialism, this is the government Mm because the government owns everything. They pretend to pay us. We pretend to work. It's common sense. You don't have to cite St. Augustine or anybody else. It's just common sense. Mm-hmm. When you have absolutely no hope of ever improving your situation, right? Of making a better life for yourself or your family. What's the point of wait, working hard? That's why things fall apart. That's why things don't work in socialist states, mm-hmm. right? Of course, there's a flip side to this, which is, you know, uh, know, brutal uh, exploitation of labor. That's not good either. Mm -hmm. That's not good either. And actually, it's part of our, our, you know, our our so-called immigration crisis is not really an immigration crisis. It's a labor crisis. (laughs) These people who cross uh, from Central America and Mexico uh, or come here to the United States who are they? They're the people who take on the jobs that nobody else wants to have. And their hope is purely 
self-interest. They know that this is a place where they can improve their lives and their families' lives. Because back home, for whatever reason it is, they can't. Yeah, there a lot of them are fleeing systems that take away property, or you have no property rights, or yeah. you have no rights in right. general. So back to the recipe question. What, what has to change or what has to take place, do you think, for a good revolution uh, to happen in Cuba or elsewhere? Uh, that's a hard question I've asked myself many times. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I don't think I'm smart enough to, <laughs> okay. to know the answer. Part of the answer is that, uh, yeah, obviously socialism doesn't work. It works for monasteries sometimes, uh, but that's because it's voluntary. But ask anybody who's lived in a commune, right? That's not a religion, and that it has a religious thing to it, monasticism. Ask anybody who's lived in a commune without, you know, some kind of religious uh, foundation, and they'll tell you horror stories. If you'd like to hear more of Dr. Ayer, be sure to check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episodes 245 and 248 where we discuss his academic work in the area of Reformation history. Also, if you'd like to hear more about Cuba, the aforementioned Rosa Maria Paya came back by the woodpile on episode 236 to talk about she and her martyred father's quest for democracy and liberty in Cuba. Or if you still think Marxism is a fantastic idea, we must recommend our introductory primer to that political persuasion called Orientation to the Revolution on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 246. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and a Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.